Hello, everyone, and welcome to the trustee table. I'm Anne-Marie Balzano, Director of Leadership and Governance at NAIS, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Gold. Dr. Gold is the Chancellor of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, Vice President of the University of Nebraska System, and Chair of the Board of UNMC's Principal Clinical Care Academic Health System Partner, Nebraska Medicine. In April 2017, Dr. Gold also was named Chancellor of the University of Nebraska at Omaha, the state's public metropolitan university. He holds a health professions academic appointment at the rank of professor in the UNMC College of Medicine, as well as in the College of Public Health, where his research interests in population health are concentrated. Dr. Gold's national leadership is extensive and has included more than 50 national professional committees and more than 100 national organizations, volunteer boards, government public health councils, and industry. Dr. Gold has also served in numerous roles on governing boards and as the elected leader of regional and national professional, accreditation, and advocacy organizations in the education, research, and clinical care delivery sectors. Dr. Gold, thank you for taking a seat at the table today. Anne-Marie, it's a great pleasure to be with you and to be with this audience. So I know you've been on the front lines of providing up-to-date information on COVID-19 to the community, and I just have to say we're so incredibly grateful for your time. So given your background in population health and your leadership roles at both UNMC and the University of Nebraska, can you share with us what your first steps were in the decision-making process when you learned about the pandemic? And like, when did you realize that you were facing a crisis and it was time to act? Well... We have been involved at the University of Nebraska Medical Center uh, for almost uh, 20 years, actually, shortly after the 9-11 attacks and uh, and the SARS uh, and the uh, anthrax scares in building and maintaining a world-class biocontainment unit. And that had to do with the fact Mm -hmm. that we work very closely with United States Strategic Command uh, and do a lot of so-called countermeasures uh, for weapons of mass destruction research. And so when our leadership team, uh, particularly around the group known as the Global Center for Health Security, which is the organization that is responsible for all things education, uh, training, research, and clinical uh, outreach, started to see what was going on in Wuhan City uh, in the Hubei province of China, it became very clear to us that no matter how uh, extensive the efforts might be uh, in in Wuhan City, uh, that it was going to be very, very difficult to contain it to one province. And as it got out of one province, because of all the global transportation that was going on, it was going to be very clear uh, that this was going to become a global problem. It was just a matter of how fast, to what degree of severity, and uh, and what steps to contain and mediate that could be implemented in various parts of the world. So it took us about a week uh, to make a decision that we needed starting to plan for what if. Uh, And, Mm -hmm. you know, fortunately, uh, from a university perspective, when you can speak at this uh, at multiple different strategic and operational levels, we had the opportunity because of extensive uh, distance learning and remote educational programs on both the undergraduate, graduate, and professional levels, uh, what we really had to do was identify the resources necessary to ramp that up in event we got to, you know, extreme uh, what we call physical distancing now and all of the consequences Mm -hmm. thereof, and then possibly up to and including uh, the total levels of shelter in place, 
and other such things because we knew and our team, you know, our biological scientist team knew that it would be a significant period of time before an effective vaccine or antiviral uh, would be available uh, to blunt the impact of this. We had to uh, figure out from a, a strategic and then, of course, uh, from a planning perspective, how we were going to stay ahead of this. And so multiple contingency plans in various phases were developed for each of our mission sets across all of the education, research, and clinical missions. So why don't I stop at that mm -hmm. point, because maybe I've bored you uh, with far too much information. <laughs> no, no, not at all. In fact, as you were speaking, what I was what brought to mind right away was what we often ask our, our independent school trustees to do is this idea of environmental scanning and sort of looking at what outside forces might be impacting the school, or in your case, the university, um, looking at data, doing some generative thinking and some contingency planning for just those what-if scenarios, as you described. And it sounds like that put you in a much better position as this pandemic grew and and really became you know a huge crisis not just for for Nebraska but for the entire for the entire world well you know it's so interesting that we go through every year uh, and have for the last six years now almost seven what we call a, a generative thinking or breakthrough thinking process uh, we actually call it the breakthrough thinking process and the idea of all of that is to identify uh, internal and existential threats, uh, and to convert those threats and those challenges, as we call them, uh, into opportunities. So the whole idea of the process, mm -hmm. and it's a year-long process, which ultimately makes changes in our strategic planning every year, uh, it, identification of what these concerns outside forces might be, both the good and the bad. So for instance, one of them uh, was an event such as this and has been for a long time, Another one is the impact of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and cognitive mm -hmm. computing. Uh, another one has to do with, uh, for instance, the the challenges of dealing with both a very urban and a very rural community. And I could list them for you, but the idea being is uh, these are not just threats to our current uh, way of doing business and our current operations and strategies, but in in, in the most important sense, they're opportunities. And so the goal of our mm -hmm. governance-related processes and our management-related processes are to come together in what is typically referred to as generative thinking, although we call it breakthrough thinking, and trying to figure out uh, how to best position uh, us from a strategic perspective uh, to turn those challenges into opportunities and turn the opportunities uh, into programs and realities. So bringing this back to, to the generative thinking piece, you know, last March, you gave that wonderful talk at the Business Ethics Alliance breakfast about generative thinking. So how do you define that term when you're speaking about that to your stakeholders or to the folks that you're working with? Yeah. So if I recall back to that breakfast, and I really enjoyed that, uh, I, m I must recall, uh, <laughs> I was really speaking about the uh, Richard Chait book known as Governance as Leadership. And, you know, I've really enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed his book and I enjoyed the way he defined the concepts because they fit nicely uh, with our way of thinking about governance. And we're very fortunate to have board structures that I participate in on the university level with the Board of Regents, on the health system level, on the area of Nebraska medicine, but also many other national boards, volunteer boards that I sit on 
that uh, we've really tried to move, uh, not to move away from fiduciary and strategic governance, but just to be sure that there's a balance around generative uh, governance. And there are many different ways of defining it. Certainly, you could look at Richard Chait's definition. But I like the questions about, you know, not how do we solve problems, but what problems are we going to solve? What are the existential Mm -hmm. threats and how to turn those existential threats and concerns uh, into priorities, into operational goals, how to quantify them, and then deliver that to the senior management of the organization uh, to work very closely. You know, in many instances, uh, boards stick to the purely fiduciary aspects of their responsibilities, which, of course, means, you know, passing the strategic plan and approving the budget and agreeing to the 990s mm-hmm. if they're a uh, not-for-profit and those usual types of things. But it's not all that often that at least I've seen boards really get into beyond the strategies, uh, into the true generative aspects of it. And you may recall from the time of our uh, breakfast meeting about a year ago now, hard to believe how time flies, I actually mm-hmm. talked about the fact that we quantify the time in each board meeting as to how much is spent in each of those categories, and that we've flipped mm-hmm. the order. You know, we used to do the fiduciary stuff first, please approve the minutes, da 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 da, uh, and then the strategic stuff, and then the generative stuff. But now we start all of our board meetings on many of our boards that I sit in and several that I chair with the generative things when people are most awake and alert and engaged and then (laughs) deal with the strategic things. And finally, you know, pass the minutes and the budget and whatever, not to say that they're unimportant, but when you want to get the best creativity of people, you've got to set the priorities and Mm -hmm. putting it up front in your agenda and, you know, making it really clear that this is what you're prioritizing. Because at the end of the day, you know, the board members uh, of volunteer boards and non-volunteer boards, are really there to guide the company, to be the compass in many different ways, and to work closely with the senior leadership. You know, in the case of the school boards, the superintendents and the leaders who are uh, entrusted on a day-to-day basis, but to rely uh, on their boards uh, as a sounding uh, level to uh, solicit Mm -hmm. judgment, but also to get focused on which are the important questions to ask. I mean, they can come up with the answers, but there are far more questions out there than you know you can usually focus on if you don't have some narrowing, some ability to uh, have a lens on what those should be. I couldn't agree with you more. And and I like that idea of, of sort of starting with generative work first. I usually tell my heads of school when, you know, we're talking about issues around leadership practice, you know, you have a, a very short amount of time and you have a finite amount of time and sort of what you turn the volume up on is what people will pay attention to. And so I think, you know, the idea of focusing on generative thinking first does send that message that, that this is actually really important work and not just an afterthought, not something that we can just get to later on. When we develop our board agendas, we usually put a timeline on them, you know, half an hour here, 20 minutes there, five minutes there. And that sends a huge message to the board from, uh, you know, what you're really prioritizing, because the most valuable commodity any board member has with the senior leadership of an organization is their time together. Yes, absolutely. And I like using that idea of, of having the agenda be a data source of, you know, well, how are we spending our time? You know, are we spending a majority of our time listening to, com- you know, to committee reports? Maybe that's not the best use of our time. 
Um, so in the midst of a crisis, boards often worry about the strategic implications of the situation, such as, you know, are we going to have enough students? How can we balance the budget? Do you have any suggestions for helping independent school boards work in a more generative mode as well, even during these times of really high stress? Sure. Uh, this is a time of really high stress, of really, really, really mm-hmm. high stress, <laughs> un- unprecedented stress. Because one, uh, we're dealing with a pandemic uh, medical issue that we have not seen probably since the days of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. You know, there's probably very few people who can recall the impact of that. But if you read about it, it was nothing short of tragic on a, on a global level, including our, our country. Secondly, we do not have a very clear understanding of how long this is going to last or how deep the impact's going to be. And that impact, I'm not just talking about the medical impact, meaning on hospitals and clinics and loss of life, uh, which is, of course, tragic, but the economic impact, the sociologic impact, the impact of physical distancing that has occurred and meaning uh, the closure of schools, the movement to remote learning, the uh, slowing of all or elimination of all public gatherings, you know, think restaurants, churches, uh, athletic events, things along those lines. And, you know, human beings are very social creatures and we've become increasingly social. You know, the good news there is that we not only have become increasingly social, but we've become increasingly social uh, with technology. And therefore, you know, uh, all of the uh, social media and all of the uh, FaceTime and cell phones and other, you know, smart devices have really helped us stay connected at the family level and at the community level and at the friendship level uh, as well. But having said all of that, these are unprecedented times and uh, it causes a huge amount of stress. And, you know, one of the things that we deal with in our organization and are very concerned about is the emotional health uh, consequences of this in addition to the you know, obvious tragic uh, medical, you know, pure medical. Uh, Right now, many are focused in the healthcare side of how many hospital beds do we have? If we run out of ventilators, what's going to happen, et cetera. But as as I sit on the board of multiple national organizations and a volunteer capacity, uh, we're very interested in is, uh, A, what what is going to be the immediate impact and what governance changes are going to be required to bylaws and and other such things in order to allow our organizations to most effectively deal with this. But also, what are the long-term consequences of this? And so uh, I think to ask our boards uh, to not be focused on the here and now, the budget, the enrollment, the faculty, the contracts, the employees, you know, all of those things that we care so deeply about uh, in our highly uh, networked and integrated world, to start to look beyond that is going to be very, very difficult. However, Mm -hmm. having said that, uh, I think from a fiduciary responsibility, one must, and certainly from a strategic and governance responsibility, uh, one must ask the question of what are we going to look like when this is over? What can we learn from Mm -hmm. this experience? How can we protect ourselves in the future? And most importantly, what are the lessons learned as applied to uh, changes that we may want to make in our organization to strengthen uh, the school system, to strengthen the community, 
uh, to, you know, look really, really carefully at things like mission and values uh, and uh, and vision of the organization. Mm-hmm. Those are all, you know, excellent, both short-term and, and long-term generative questions, I think, that boards are going to be having to wrestle with. And it sounds like in order for them to do that, it's going to be really key for them to, to structure that time then within the board meeting um, so that they're not just focused on the immediate, but that they're also sort of wrestling with future implications as well. Exactly. And so we dedicate time uh, on all of those areas. And I've, you know, as a, I, I serve in multiple capacities as a chancellor of two major campuses of the university and the chair of the board of our hospital system. And we are all focused on the leadership levels and on the governance levels of what are we going to look like when this is over? And how are we going to take the lessons learned here uh, to strengthen uh, our role and to continue, uh, you know, guided by our mission and our vision and by our core values. You know, as I've said many times to folks, uh, when the when the rowing gets really tough, uh, that's when you have to go back to the mission. That's when you have to go mm-hmm. back to your values. When things are, are you know, peachy keen and, uh, and the smooth sailing, uh, you know, it's all fine. It's just uh, words written on a piece of paper. But when you have to make really hard decisions, that's when your values uh, and and your mission really become critically important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're they're definitely guideposts during these dark times. And you know, we've been certainly encouraging our our boards and our heads of school to to go back to their mission, vision, and values as a basis for action planning and decision making during this time. It is also an opportunity if you go back to your mission, vision, and values, and they don't fit at any given time. This is a really good time to rethink that uh, because (laughs) this is a real test of the validity of those three core components. You know, the strategies come and go and the tactics and the operational considerations come and go, but the mission needs to be enduring. And uh, and if the mission doesn't fit the Mm -hmm. times, uh, that's a really good opportunity to take a look at it. Yes, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. And as you were talking earlier about, you know, we're going to learn some lessons through this through this ordeal. Can you tell us a little bit about what are some of the biggest issues that the university has faced so far and, and some of the major lessons learned? So the uh, in the early phase of our response, uh, we shifted to a 100 uh, percent uh, or nearly 100 percent remote educational model. And uh, that means everything from distance learning to blended learning to self-instructed learning to automated learning, experiential learning, uh, et cetera. And that uh, was a uh, significant paradigm shift. Now, having said that, we have had uh, extensive uh, distance and blended learning programs for a long time. And so, therefore, all of the technology was there, but the expertise of the faculty and the staff to support that uh, was not. We had to go through a very intense instructional period in order to make our faculty reasonably comfortable, uh, quote unquote, uh, you know, to take some time (laughs) to kick the tires on these things. But, you know, when you're talking about between the two campuses, I'm responsible for over 20,000 students, you know, 15 colleges and 
you know, an extensive amount of both undergraduate, graduate, and professional programs, and also to deal simultaneously with all of the accrediting bodies, you think about it, all of the health profession mm -hmm. programs, medicine, nursing, pharmacy, dentistry, all of the allied health programs, public health, education, engineering, social work, I mean, just to name a few, all have independent accrediting bodies that we have to comply with uh, in order to be sure that we have programs that make our graduates eligible for their certifications uh, and their board eligibilities. And so getting all of that done in a matter of weeks and implemented, we actually got to the point before uh, we went to the remote education model is we not only did tabletop exercises with everybody, but we actually tested it just to make sure that wow. the technical part of it worked at a very large scale and that we had the capabilities uh, of our faculty and staff to implement it. So the observation from that to me was that uh, it was just an incredible experience and that people rolled up their sleeves, worked really hard and got it done. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I don't know if we're at 100% remote education right now, considering almost all of our faculty and staff are working from home right now, but mm -hmm. we are fully operational uh, and you know, our, a lot of our students left their dorms. Uh, we certainly suspended all of our athletic programs, cultural programs, community events, etc., but created a model where uh, that this could be done. We've moved on from mm -hmm. that to, you know, other areas uh, regarding, you know, uh, peer-reviewed research, uh, funded research, multiple different parts of our mission, our clinical mission, etc., uh, all of which had different considerations and are different phases of the response program. But the long and the short of it is, uh, you know, I, I've just are, I'm always thrilled uh, to see human nature at its best. You know, these events do bring out human nature at its best, but sometimes they bring out human nature at its worst. But I've been, I've not been disappointed in the humanity that I've seen, both from the tiny little acts of kindness you know, people dropping off food for their older friends uh, to, uh, you know, people doing favors for others and, and pitching in mm -hmm. in a difficult situation. It reminds me, you know, I lived in New York City during the 9-11 attacks <clears throat> and, uh, okay. and the, the humanity that was demonstrated was just in, incredible. And it's not to say that the media is not filled with the opposite of that from time to time, and I'm sure it has been. Uh, I know it has been, and it will continue to be over a period of time as well. But the overwhelming majority of that, at least in our community, has been positive, and uh, and it, it's just heartwarming to me. People treat each other like family, and you know we've tried, uh, you know, on many different things in response to this. But I would just add in closing that communication has got to be key, and communication at the board mm -hmm. level is critical. The you know, the, the senior management needs to be seen and heard with a clear uh, and articulate voice. But the rank and file uh, of the organization, particularly large organizations, you think about it, the Med Center here alone employs over 40,000 people whose lives and sure. careers and livelihood depend on our being successful and being able to sustain our mission. Uh, you know, hearing loud and clear from me and from other members of the leadership team that we've got your back, that we care, that we're going to do everything possible to help you get through this. And the response from our communities and from our employee base have been 
uh, nothing short of spectacular. That's wonderful. And that's excellent advice for our trustees and for our heads of school and our admin teams as they continue to navigate this crisis situation, as you said, is uncertain as we move forward. So that's that's excellent advice. Dr. Gold, thank you so much for your time today. We're so incredibly grateful for your knowledge and expertise. And I know that the insights that you shared with us are going to be invaluable to our members during this time of crisis. Well, I hope it's that helpful even a little bit. And if I can help in the future, please do let me know. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Trustee Table. We've included some great resources on some of the areas we discussed at NAIS.org, and you can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes. Please be sure to listen, rate, review, and subscribe to a new episode each month. Thank you for listening.